Welcome to Third Man Walking. It's August now, which is good for me because July was a pretty rough month. I made money for the month, but just barely, and played lots of spots that illustrate the amount of variance you can encounter in Los Angeles poker. My friend Yale is in town and has been grinding here for a few weeks as well. And I know this is something that has struck him as he's compared LA to other markets. Players are just more aggressive here and put you in lots of spots, even if they aren't always playing optimally. So I want to begin today by talking about a couple of examples of those kinds of spots where my opponents did something that added a lot of variance to my life. So in this first one, I'm playing 5-5, it's a thousand cap, and my opponent just got to the table with a stack of around 1,200. I don't know him at all, which is a big factor in a lot of LA variants. The player pool is so big, you're constantly encountering people you don't know. I can tell this guy is pretty splashy, but I don't yet know what forms that splashiness will take. So there's one limp, he raises to $30 in the cutoff, and I have pocket aces without a spade on the button and re-raise to $105. He calls. So now there's about 220 in the pot heading to the flop. And again, I have aces without a spade, and the flop comes queen, eight, seven with the eight and seven of spades. He checks, I bet $115, and he calls. So now there's about $450 in the pot, and the turn is an offsuit four. So now the board is queen, eight, seven, four with two spades. He checks again, and this four generally shouldn't change anything. So I bet $275, and he calls. So now there's about $1,000 in the pot, and the river is the nine of spades, completing front door spades. So now queen, eight, seven with two spades, offsuit four, and then the nine of spades. And again, I have aces without a spade. And now he leads all in for $690 total. And I think without a spade in my hand, um, this is just going to be a fold. I would call here with flushes I might have, and I will definitely have some. Then also aces with a spade, kings with a spade, ace queen with the ace of spades, and then also pocket queens. And I'm going to have to fold pocket aces without a spade and pocket kings without a spade. So I do fold and my opponent shows pocket jacks with the jack of spades. So I think he's calling on the flop and turn with the idea that his jacks might be good and then sees an opportunity on the river when the spade comes in and he blocks the straight flush and shoves all in. And I think, wow, um, that was a really bad play by him, right? And I go home and I look in a solver and I find that yes, it is really bad. But if he's willing to do this, He's immediately so much harder to play against than a lot of villains in live poker, where when they just lead all in, they just have a flush every single time, and you can comfortably fold almost everything. If he's willing to make plays like this, I have to call him a little bit wider. So I'm going to be making a lot more money when I have a flush, but I'm also sometimes going to be incorrectly paying him off, and I'm also sometimes going to be incorrectly folding the winning hand. So if you face a bunch of decisions like this, you get a bunch of them right, you're making a lot of money. But when you start to fold winners or incorrectly call with losers, and you will, it's going to be tough to stay profitable for the month. And that's the kind of thing that LA Poker can hit you with.
This next hand comes from a 5-10-20 game that is one of the best games I've played in all year. There's a big fun player in the Lojack who raises to $75, which doesn't mean anything. The cutoff, who I don't know at all, calls, and I have Queen Jack of Diamonds on the button. And I think because the Lojack just has so much garbage in his range, and the cutoff should not be especially strong in this sequence either, this is a pretty clear 3-bet, so I raise to $350, and they both call. So now there's about $1,090 in the pot, and the flop comes 10, 6, 4, with the 6 and 4 of diamonds. So I have two overcards and a flush draw with my queen jack of diamonds. Both players check to me, and I bet $450, and they both call. So now there's $2440 in the pot, and the turn is the queen of hearts. So now the board is 10, 6, 4 with two diamonds, and now a queen, which also creates a backdoor heart draw. So now two diamonds, two hearts. I have top pair and a flush draw now with my queen jack of diamonds. The low jack checks again, and now the cutoff leads all in out of turn for $2,260, about the amount of the pot. I think for a while, and I think on the surface, it's a pretty clear call with top pair and a flush draw, but I do want to think about this because it would be really bad to call and be like a four to one dog against pocket sixes or pocket fours. I do think it's possible for him to have those hands at least some of the time, but I think he would raise them on the flop sometimes. And I think there's also just a lot of worse draws he can have, you know, combo draws involving either diamonds or hearts, or he could have a worse pair plus draw hand like ace 10 of hearts. So I think I do have to continue here. I make the call, leaving myself something like $1,200 behind, and the fun player now calls as well. So now there's about $9,200 in the pot heading to the river, which is the seven of hearts. So now 10, six, four with two diamonds, queen making two hearts, and seven on the end making three hearts. The low jack checks to me again, and I don't see the point necessarily in shoving for my last 1200 or so on a card this wet, so I check back. The cutoff immediately and proudly shows ace king of hearts for the not flush, and the low jack also shows his hand, which is seven five of spades for a busted flopped straight draw. So the cutoff wins a $9,200 pot. And you know what, whatever, I created a lot of variance here for myself by three betting preflop, and I put a ton of money in on the turn with just a pair and a flush draw. And whenever that happens against two players, I'm just going to lose a decent percentage of the time. But I got the money in as a 56% favorite against two opponents, which is really good, and wind up with nothing. And as I'm driving home that night, I'm just thinking about all the ways I could have saved money in this hand if the cutoff had played it better. For example, the low jack raises, and now comes around to the cutoff, preflop, he should be three betting, in which case I would just fold, but he doesn't, he calls, and so I three bet. The low jack then calls, it comes back around to the cutoff, and now he should four bet, in which case, again, I would fold, but instead he calls. Then on the flop, 10-6-4 with one heart and two diamonds, I bet, and the low jack calls, cutoff has a pretty clear fold, but he calls, and then on the turn, who knows what should happen, but he leads all in. It all just creates maximum variance for me, and when he hits on the river as he did, 
uh, just maximum pain. And that's just the way poker in LA goes sometimes. It's also been a rough month in terms of the way people have acted at the table. Um, I've had a lot of people be quite mean to me, which is okay, but you know, I'm, I'm not a super easy person to get mad at, I don't think. And that's happened several times anyway. And I've just had a lot of incidents in general where people are being really unpleasant at the table and just outwardly breaking rules, talking about people's hands while action is taking place at the table, for example. I've seen that happen over and over again. And the things I heard about LA before I moved here were that the players were extremely rude, that people tore up cards and cussed out the dealers and things like that. And to be honest, before the past few months, I never saw much of that. And I thought that LA's reputation in that regard was kind of overblown. But lately, man, I've really seen it. People being really nasty and not having much respect for the rules. And I don't know if that's just another layer of bad luck that I've had, or if it's maybe that people have developed bad habits in home games that took place over quarantine and are now bringing them to the casinos. But it just adds another layer of poker not being especially fun when you're running bad. It's easy to shake that stuff off when you're running good, but when you aren't, those instances of of people being nasty to you or to the dealer or whatever, they stick with you a little bit more. Today I want to talk about one of those instances, and more generally I want to talk about calling the clock. So calling the clock in poker occurs when a player is considering what decision to make, and another player calls the clock to force that process to an end. So a floor person comes to the table and sets a timer, usually for a minute, by the end of which the player has to act on their hand or it's declared dead. Clock calling exists in every poker room I've ever played in, and it exists because we're all at the poker room to play poker. Taking a really long time to make a decision or taking a long time to make what should be a simple decision or habitually taking a long time to make decisions all prevent everyone else at the table from playing poker. Clock calling doesn't happen that often, and players should consider a variety of factors before they do it because every situation is different. If a player usually acts quickly, which demonstrates accumulated respect for the pace of the game, they should get some leeway when they need a little bit of extra time in a tough spot. If the pot is especially big relative to the stakes of the game, a player in the tank should, again, get a little bit of extra leeway. And if the player taking a long time is a whale who's dumping money in the game, they usually are given, and I think they deserve, some extra time in a big spot. But with all that said, Some players consider clock calling to be rude, like categorically, and I think they're incredibly wrong to think this. Many serious forms of poker, including online poker, high-stakes live tournaments, and some high-stakes live cash games, have clock mechanisms built into the game. Every hand is timed in online poker, and in many high-stakes live environments, dealers use timers, with each player having the option to buy extra time using a finite number of special chips. These mechanisms exist because poker rooms and tournament directors appreciate that taking a long time to act, especially habitually, is boring and bad for the game. There was a time in poker several years ago and before the introduction of these new time chips 
when tournament players in particular were very concerned about giving away timing tells, and therefore took a significant amount of time with nearly all their decisions, except trivial preflop folds. Unedited footage of tournament hands from this period is just about unwatchable now. And of course, in tournaments there are situations near the bubble or near pay jumps in which a player's expected value increases when his table plays fewer hands, or when he has more information about what's happening at the other tables before he acts. So it's common for tournament players to stall to increase their chances of laddering up and making more money. This too is boring and bad for the game, and so tournament directors sensibly have taken measures to prevent it. So these time chips have significantly improved the pace of play in tournaments. But in most live cash games, there are no timers. The only measure that exists to prevent tanking is calling the clock. If there's a player at your table wasting everyone's time, calling the clock is your only line of defense. So last week I was playing 510, and a young player sat down directly to my left. After an hour or so, he'd played a fair number of hands, but he wasn't the action player at the table. He got into a hand with the player on his left, an older, tighter guy. On the river, the younger player faced a bet of $625 on a board of, I believe, queen-queen-976 with two spades on the flop. He went into the tank for several minutes and said something to the effect of, did you miss your spade draw? He picked his cards up off the table a bit, and I could see that one of them was the deuce of spades. So again, queen-queen-976 with two spades, and I can see that this player has the deuce of spades in his hand as he's considering for several minutes whether to call this $625 bet. And at this point, I thought, okay, I mean, this is not a serious decision. One of the queens in the flop was obviously the queen of spades, so it was pretty unlikely that this player had a queen in his hand. So he was considering a call with, what, I mean, seven deuce of spades, six deuce of spades, ace deuce of spades, pocket deuces, on queen queen nine seven six. And his opponent, I knew, nearly always had a good hand in this situation. So I counted to 30 slowly in my head, and then I called the clock. My guess is that this guy had had four to five minutes to make his decision at this point. As I called the clock, I turned to this player and I said, sorry man, which I didn't have to say because I'd done nothing wrong. So the floor came over and asked if the player had had enough time to make a decision. Two other players at the table instantly verified that he had, and so did the dealer. So the floor started a timer. The guy ended up calling, which clearly was a bad decision, and his opponent showed ace-queen and won the pot. And then the young player went nuts, cussing me out in extremely personal terms for something like eight minutes. I didn't say a word the entire time, which is what I usually do when this happens, for better or for worse. This seemed like the sort of person who loved verbally attacking people, and there's no sense trying to out-asshole someone who's had lots of practice being an asshole. All I'd said to this guy at this point was, sorry man. I had to call the floor back over twice, and the floor had to warn this guy to stop. And even after the floor left for the second time, he kept swearing under his breath, which obviously was out of proportion and completely out of line. What I did was well within the rules, and it was clear from the floor's questions that other players agreed that my calling the clock was reasonable to have done. Then, though, I started asking my friends about clock calling, and some of the answers I got surprised me a little. One of them said I was obviously in the right and two more said I was obviously in the right, but that getting yelled at in poker is to be expected, and I should have just yelled back at the guy. But one person said that he never really calls clock in cash games because it's poor customer service. Customer service should always be a factor when you're considering calling the clock. You should always be thinking about whether doing so will make the game better or worse. Who is the player you want to call the clock on? If it's a recreational player, you should think carefully about how they might respond. 
The bigger the fish or the whale they are, the more you should think about it. If you're at a table with six pros and one whale, and you think there's any chance a whale would react negatively to having the clock called, you shouldn't call the clock, because if the whale leaves, you don't have a game. And if you play often with a recreational player who's losing lots of money to you, and you think she might respond negatively to a clock call, you probably shouldn't call the clock there either. But there's a flip side to these sorts of practical considerations, which is that if you're sitting there annoyed at how long someone is thinking, any recreational players who are at your table but not in the hand are likely to be annoyed as well. So if the length of the tank is really excessive, especially relative to the size of the decision, or if the player in the tank is habitually a slow decision maker, maybe you can call the clock even if you fear they'll be upset. And hey, maybe this practical approach is where considerations of calling the clock should end. If you're a pro or an aspiring pro, you're trying to make money, and any clock call should be preceded by a moment of thought about whether doing so actually maximizes your expected value, either now or in the future. But damn it, your opponents shouldn't get mad when you call the clock. It's within the rules, it's the only mechanism to prevent excessive tanking, and any player who thinks you're rude for calling the clock on them should first consider whether they're the one being rude as they take four minutes to consider whether to call a 15 big blind riverbed. The same colleague who told me he never calls clock compared the anger some players express in response to a clock call to the way some baseball players react to perceived violations of that sport's so-called unwritten rules. In 2013, Milwaukee Brewers outfielder Carlos Gomez hit a homer against the Atlanta Braves and was slow to begin his trot around the bases as he took a couple seconds to watch the ball sail past center field. Braves first baseman Freddie Freeman and catcher Brian McCann were both visibly incensed that Gomez took literally about two seconds longer than he needed to, and McCann walked up the third baseline and blocked Gomez from crossing the plate, leading both teams to clear their benches. And it's like, what are we upset about here, guys? Gomez wasn't even close to violating the rules, and who put you in charge? Why are you so stuffy, and why are you so protective of these imaginary boundaries? Now, maybe we don't want to go too far with this, because poker does have some imaginary boundaries I think should be honored. For example, lots of types of angle shooting are also within the rules, but they're designed to create an advantage that's outside the usual domain of the game. But clock calling, if done judiciously, doesn't do any of those things. In fact, it facilitates gameplay by decreasing time between hands and keeping everyone at the table actively involved in the game. And it isn't designed to give anyone an advantage, only to move the game along. So, next time someone at your table is taking an eternity on a decision, consider calling the clock. It's your right. It is July 19th, 2021, and I just played a pretty interesting session of 510. So, in this particular 510 game, it's a 1500 cap that sometimes changes to no cap later in the day. And it also frequently plays with a straddle, so it plays as 510-20, which is kind of funny at the start of the day when everybody has $1,500 or less, and you've got a straddle on, everybody's starting with 75 big blinds or fewer, which is pretty unusual in um, mid-stakes and above. But it creates an interesting dynamic in this first big hand of the day. So in this one, I am $1,500 effective against my opponent. It's, this is 5, 10, 20. There's one limp. I raised to $80 in the cutoff with pocket eights. And the small blind, who is a good reg, re-raises to $250, and it folds back to me. Now, 
Normally when you are three betting out of position, you want to raise bigger than this. You want to raise to at least four times the size of the original raise. But in this case, his sizing is unconventional, but I kind of like it because we're so shallow. I can't really speculate too much given how little depth there is here. And he's immediately putting a hand like pocket eights in a tough spot. I actually consider folding, but I end up going for the call. I raise from the cutoff. He raised from the small blind, which should indicate that he can be decently wide here. I'm getting a pretty good price because his three bet is so small and pocket eights is just kind of a good hand. So for all those reasons, I decide to call. There's about 540 in the pot and we go to a flop, which is nine, nine, eight with two hearts. So I flop eights full of nines, really great flop. My opponent bets 180, about a third of the pot. And I don't know that I would want to be raising that frequently here. And I think what this spot comes down to is that his overpairs are just better than my overpairs. So I have jacks and tens a lot here. I would also sometimes just call preflop with aces against this particular player. But if I had kings or queens, I would probably just shove it in preflop. So I don't really have those two hands. And he has all the strong overpairs here. And so I think I need to think about this spot in terms of what do I want to do with jacks or tens. And I think I mostly want to call. So I go ahead and call. So there's 875 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the seven of hearts completing front door hearts. He checks and I think I was thinking about this spot slightly wrong. I was thinking that I have a lot of pocket tens and pocket jacks in my range and that those hands mostly wanted to check here because they were dominated by his better over pairs. But after checking a solver, I think jacks or tens want to bet smaller here to fold out his ace-king or ace-queen and to charge him if he has one of those hands with a heart. But I end up checking back, figuring that with only a little bit more than pot behind on the river, checking back can't be that big a mistake because with a really strong hand like eights full, I'm going to be able to get the money in on the river even if I don't put any more in now. So there's still 875 in the pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit deuce. So again, I have pocket eights. The board is nine, nine, eight with two hearts, the seven on the turn making a third heart and now an offsuit deuce. He jams, I of course call and end up beating pocket kings with the king of hearts. So great to get off to a good start. I continue to spin it up for a while. In this next hand, the straddle is on again and the hijack raises to $70. I have pocket aces in the cutoff and re-raise to 240 and the hijack calls. So now there's about $500 in the pot and the flop comes king, queen, deuce, rainbow. He checks and I don't know this player but he seems to be a recreational player and it's pretty hard for him to have something good here because I block ace king. So I think one of the better things we can hope for is for this guy to have like king jack suited here or something like that. And often he's going to have worse like pocket jacks, pocket tens, something along those lines, you know, ace queen, queen jack suited, something like that. This guy has shown in a small sample that he's not a big folder, but I still want to keep the sizes pretty small. So after he checks, I bet $200 into 500 and he calls. So now there's 900 in the pot and the turn is a deuce. So king, queen, deuce, deuce. 
and I have pocket aces. He checks again, and I don't think it's super likely he has king-queen because he would probably raise the flop. But now I even beat that, which is great. So I'm following the same principles as before. I want to bet a decent amount because he doesn't like folding, but still not a lot because it's hard for him to have much. So I bet 500 and he calls. So now there's $1,900 in the pot and the river is an offsuit seven. He checks again. He has about 2,500 behind at this point. I don't think I can get it all really. I don't really know what he can have that will pay me off. Maybe king queen would. That's certainly a possibility, but I don't think it's super likely. So again, I want to keep the sizes fairly small. I bet 900 into 1900. He calls and shows a king and mucks after I table my hand. So I've spun up my stack pretty nicely here. And this next pot is a $50 bomb pot. I really like bomb pots as long as they're no limit hold'em and not double board PLO bomb pots because I don't feel people play them very well. In particular, they call off too light, put in too much money with hands that are too weak. But the flip side of that is because it's a bomb pot, anybody can have any combination of cards at any time. Anyone can have the nuts. So bomb pots can be kind of a minefield. In this one, I have ace-deuce offsuit in middle position, and the flop comes four-deuce-deuce rainbow. So I flop trips with the best kicker. I actually check, and the hijack bets $150. It folds back to me, and I call, which I don't like. I should be either check-raising here in order to target the case-deuce with a worse kicker, or just leading myself. But for some reason, I go with check call here, which I don't think is very good. So there's 645 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the nine of clubs creating a backdoor club draw. So now four, deuce, deuce, nine with two clubs, and I have ace, deuce, offsuit with no clubs. So I check again, and he bets 275. And here's where I'm like, okay, need to start piling money into this pot. There's so many worse deuce X combos my opponent can have. So I raise to $900 and he calls. So now there's 2445 in the pot and the river is an offsuit five. And now I have a decision because my opponent has almost exactly pot behind. And so what I'm thinking here is I have ace deuce and there are so many other ways for my opponent to have a deuce. He could have king deuce, queen deuce, jack deuce, 10 deuce, eight deuce, and so on because it's a bomb pot. They're all possible. He could certainly also have a full house that beats me, but because there's so many deuce X possible, I often have the best hand here. Now, that doesn't mean that I should go all in. If my opponent is going to fold a lot of that deuce X, then maybe checking and figuring it out is a better play, or maybe there's some case for betting smaller or something like that. And I think that in a lot of player pools, you would find a lot of players who would fold to an all-in here with, say, Jack Deuce. I don't really know this guy. I know that he's a little bit splashy from playing with him for an hour. I also know that he has put money in some pots and that he was the one calling for bomb pots to be played. So he wants there to be some action. And I also know that generally recreational players in this particular player pool are not the sort to fold a Deuce here. So it's thin, but I decide to go all in for about pot 
and my opponent quickly calls with pocket fours. So he had flopped uh, a boat for a pretty massive cooler on the flop and gets the maximum. I don't love the way I played the flop, but I think getting stacks in with this hand in whatever way I end up doing it, whether it's check-raising the flop and jamming the turn or check-raising the flop, betting small on the turn and then jamming the river or something like that, getting all the money in is the way to go. And I got coolered here. So all the profit is now gone and then some. <laughs> so I'm in the hole a little bit, but I keep going. In this next hand, we're back to 5, 10, 20. I have pocket aces in the hijack and raise to 60. The button calls and now the third blind, the guy in the 20, re-raises to 150. And I'm like, oh yes, I was waiting for somebody to three bet and finally they did. So it's back to me. I put in the four bet to 425, which is a little bit big, but I don't think that this player is the type to ever really fold to a four bet after putting in a three bet. So no reason for me not to size up a bit. The button folds and now it's back to this player in the third blind and he puts in a five bet to 925, which is music to my ears. I go all in for about 2200 total. He quickly calls. We agree to run it twice and there's a king in the window on the first board and he quickly turns over pocket kings. So he wins the first board, I win the second board and we chop the pot and uh, unlucky for him to have had kings and run it into aces but it's a little bit frustrating to put in that much money pre-flop with aces and only wind up with half the pot. This last hand is another bomb pot. So $50 again, and I'm in the hijack with eight, six offsuit with no spade. So there's seven players. So after the rake, there's about $345 in the pot and the flop comes nine, seven, three, with the seven and three of spades. It checks to me, and since I'm in the hijack, that means four of the seven players in the hand have checked. And I think I want to bet here. And the idea here is that a lot of the players in the hand have already shown some amount of weakness. And if I get raised here, it's not really that big a deal. My draw is not that strong. I'm only drawing to the nuts on an offsuit five. So I'm not really losing out much if I have to fold once I get raised. So by betting myself, I give myself a chance to win this pot and I know what I'm going to do if things get weird. So I bet 150, the button calls and the under the gun player, so we're playing seven handed, so we'll call that middle position. The middle position player also calls. 795 in the pot now and the turn is an offsuit 10. So nine, seven, three, 10 with two spades. I have eight, six offsuit and now have the second nuts. So I have a straight. I am beat by jack eight, but that's it. And the middle position player now leads all in for $840. So a little bit more than the pot. And I think this is a strong looking move and I would generally want to respond with a call here even though I head into the turn with about $2,200. So I do just call and the button also thinks for a while and calls. So now there's almost $3,300 in the pot and the river is an offsuit deuce, which is great. I only have about 1,300 or 1,400 behind. And if the button slow played 
Jack 8 after calling on the flop with that. Um, more power to her. But I think it's very likely that I have the best hand and there's just not a lot of money behind. So I go all in and my opponent thinks for a while and folds. The middle position player shows pocket kings and was drawing dead on the turn. And this is a, a common thing that goes on in bomb pots. People have strong starting hands and are unwilling to, to part with them when it's easy to get your aces or your kings cracked by 12 live cards that your opponent can have. The player on the button claimed that she folded a set, which initially I sort of believed based on how pained she looked, but which on reflection I think is probably not true. If she had a set on the flop, she would probably raise me given the number of worst made hands and draws I can have. And if she had pocket tens, which does seem possible on the turn, she should be calling river because it really looks like I could have a lower set than pocket tens. So a little bit of a roller coaster today, but I end up winning $1,906 in a pretty eventful and fun session. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.